Welcome to the public morality. The first amendment of the Constitution reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people to peacefully assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. The founders considered the right to free speech as fundamental to our democratic republican form of government. It is the most important while arguably the most misunderstood protection contained within the Bill of Rights. To talk about free speech and the evolving nature, we're honored to be in conversation with New York law professor Nadine Strassen. From 1991 to 2008, Professor Strassen was the first woman to head the ACLU. She is also the author of several books, including her 2018 release, Hate, Why We Should Resist It With Free Speech and Not Censorship. Professor Nadine Strassen, welcome to The Public Morality. I'm so delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in this conversation, we, we want to focus on the speech aspect of the First Amendment. And when we, when we look at the Constitution, does the Constitution ever define what speech is? It simply uses the word speech. It says Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. Mm. So the Constitution itself gives no definition, but many, many decades of Supreme Court decisions starting in the 20th century when the Supreme Court started to enforce the Bill of Rights, uh, many decisions have construed that term, and I would say uh, pretty uncontroversially for uh, throughout modern history, there has been a strong consensus on the Supreme Court that uh, even conduct that expresses a message should come within the ambit of the freedom of speech clause. So, for example, picketing or wearing an armband or carrying a protest sign, even burning the American flag is considered sufficiently expressive that it triggers First Amendment protection. Now, Byron, that does not mean that it will win First Amendment protection because freedom of speech, along with other constitutional rights, is not absolute. Government may restrict that freedom, whether it be you and me talking or somebody else burning a flag or somebody else protesting, if the government can show that the speech is directly causing or threatening certain specific imminent serious harm. Well, you, you mentioned something in your last answer that, that um, I want to talk about as we move into the 20th century, but in the 19th century, we, we were relatively free of any free speech challenges, and in the beginning of that century, we had um, signed by President uh, Adams the Alien and Sedition Acts. Um, any thoughts on why those were not challenged? that I have not been in touch with any of the um, would-be ACLU members back in the day. (laughs) Uh, But in all seriousness, I I do think that the reason why not only the Free Speech Clause, but also the Equal Protection Clause, other constitutional rights that had existed on paper since the 18th century did not start to be enforced and did not start to become an actual reality in people's lives until the 20th century, because it was then 
that you saw the formation of organizations, including the NAACP, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, and others, because our founders recognized, and I say founders of the organizations, recognize that no constitutional provision is self-enforcing. Government officials can honor them in the breach and for most of our history have indeed violated most constitutional provisions. You know, look at the legacy of, of Jim Crow that lasted far beyond the addition of the Equal Protection Clause and, you know, the imprisonment of 15,000 peaceful protesters against World War One simply for peacefully objecting to the war. Um, all of this was allowed to go on pretty much until the 1960s when at the behest of civil rights and civil liberties organizations, the United States Supreme Court started hearing cases and actually putting teeth into these uh, theoretical rights. And that was that was a perfect segue for, for, for my next question because as we're gonna we're gonna move into the Schenck case, Schenck versus United States. But I guess when we look at the advent of the 20th century, you you mentioned some of the organizations being formed. That's obviously part of the progressive era. Um, can we divorce the court's actions and their rulings from sort of the public movement and the, and the events that were going on outside of the court? You cannot, uh, certainly for a very concrete reason that you and I have both been talking about, Byron, which is it's part of the surrounding political movement that even brings the cases to the Supreme Court. The court cannot just reach out and say, we want to hear a particular issue because we think it's important uh, and we think we ought to have a rule on it. They have to wait uh, for somebody to who is actually harmed by in this case, a government policy, has a lawyer to represent them to bring a constitutional challenge to that policy. And that is likely to happen in an environment where people are aware of their rights and are um, willing to stand up for them. So, you know, the Supreme Court can't do it alone. It needs to depend on the people to bring and, and the people's lawyers to bring cases for them to uh, have an opportunity to rule on. I'm speaking with NYU constitutional law professor and former president of the ACLU, uh, Nadine Strassen, about the trajectory uh, of the first of free, of the free speech clause of the First Amendment. Professor Strassen, um, what is at the heart of the 1919 case, Schenck versus United States? Schenck was one of a series of cases that the Supreme Court decided in 1919 all of which involved essentially the same factual scenario. Uh, individuals or groups of individuals who were distributing leaflets or making statements that, that were critical of the United States policy with respect to World War I, uh, were either protesting the war, uh, urging people that they should not be um, subject to conscription pursuant to the military draft, uh, and, 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 and criticizing United States foreign policy with respect to the Soviet Union, uh, because the, the speakers were socialists who supported the Russian Revolution. So basically, they were exercising what we would now think of as core First Amendment rights to dissent from government policies, to criticize government policies, and to try to persuade other people to 
join them in uh, opposing government policies, but completely peacefully, uh, without advocating or engaging in any violence. And yet the United States Supreme Court, uh, using a very deferential standard toward the government, basically said, if there's any possibility that this speech might persuade people to oppose the war or to oppose the draft or to not allow themselves to be subject to the draft, that could interfere with the United States war effort. And that's such a serious danger that we're not going to allow the speech to go forward. And, and at the heart of that was, uh, we're obviously talking about uh, the World War I period. At the heart of that is the Espionage Act. And talk about that, because that's, that's almost like an extension, in my view, of the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798. Periodically throughout American history, starting with the 1798 Alien and Sedition Acts and then the World War I era, Espionage and Sedition Acts, and then uh, the McCarthy Cold War era Smith Act. Um, we have recurrently, in times of actual or perceived national security crises, uh, cracked down on the speech of people who simply were objecting to government policy, critiquing government officials, and dissenting uh, from war efforts in particular. And it was not only were laws that suppressed speech passed, but when people were trying to exercise their uh, First Amendment rights to peacefully protest, they were arrested if they were from other countries, especially during the World War I so-called Red Scare, they were summarily deported. So um, it's one thing, again, to have a free speech guarantee in the Constitution, and another thing altogether to have it respected by actual government officials, including Supreme Court justices. Now, as, as I always um, make it a point to, to, to stress that I am not an attorney, as I like to say to my friends, the only bar I have passed is my local tavern. Um, that said, uh, when I read the Espionage You're very <laughs> When I read the Espionage Act, Coupled with my understanding of the First Amendment, the law reads to me is that Congress has indeed made a law that abridged the freedom of speech. And so I guess my question was, what am I missing when I look at those two things? You are not missing anything, Byron. Congress throughout its history has passed many laws that violate many constitutional rights. State governments do it all the time, too as do local governments. It is, and those laws will remain in effect until or unless somebody goes to court and challenges them. And let me tell you something else, even when a constitutional uh, challenge is successful at the Supreme Court, that doesn't mean that the free speech rights will be honored in actuality. To this day, the ACLU is constantly having to go to court to defend well-established First Amendment rights of peaceful protesters who are protesting, for example, um, police brutality or misconduct, and 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 yet their uh, you know their First Amendment rights are well established, and yet local law enforcement officials all over the country continue to violate those rights. So one of the things I'm hearing. So it's Tom Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson reportedly said it has been ascribed to him 
eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. And I would add not only eternal vigilance, but eternal activism and eternal litigation. So, so would it be fair to say, and I'm thinking specifically right now in the aftermath of the Schenck case, is that the court has, in, in effect, operated on double, in double standards in terms of peacetime versus wartime and how, how they look at particular policies regarding the Constitution? That's a very, very wise observation. Uh, as I said earlier, these laws, suppressive laws, tend to be passed in times of actual uh, uh, or perceived national security crises. And one of the first resorts of government in such a situation is to suppress civil liberties. Look what happened during World War II with the horrible uh, so, you know, deprivation of rights of Japanese Americans. Look what happened after 9-11. Um, very shortly, less than a month later, Congress enacts the so-called Patriot Act that uh, really cut down on all kinds of freedoms for uh, all of us in this country. You know, and I, and oh, historians, agree with that, historians agree that with 2020 hindsight, none of these cutbacks on, on civil liberties, including free speech, did anything to actually advance our national security in a war war effort or otherwise. You know, I, I teach a, a civics intensive, and um, I uh, we were talking about the the the, the Shink case and other and other other things last week, and I and I and I and I told uh, my class I said the first thing you do look at the title of the legislation and then. Then you make sure you look at the fine print. I said, for example, who would be opposed? Who would who would support espionage? The Espionage Act. Who would who would be opposed to the Patriot Act? And I said, always be careful when the title sounds like a no-brainer, because usually there, there's some fine print that you're probably not going to like. <laughs> and 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 Byron, if I may observe, I think there's actually an inverse correlation between. Um, how nice the title sounds and how dangerous the law is, because the more American as apple pie the title sounds, the harder it is for people to vote against it, even when there are very serious reasons to vote against it. Because in an era of soundbite politics, your opponent says, you know, this candidate voted against the Patriot Act. That's all you have to say. But to explain why takes at least a paragraph, if not a page. Right. right. Right, right, uh, th and, and and this sort of brings us is still still operating in in the context of the Shank case. This brings us to the famous opinion by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. And would you mind just telling our listeners what that famous opinion was that, that we still most many of us still remember? Holmes wrote so many famous opinions, and forgive me, I did not reread Shank. Uh, before this interview, but I believe you will correct me, Professor, as I <laughs> know you are, uh, if I get it wrong. Uh, but I believe it was in that opinion that he gave the famous hypothetical of speech that would present a uh, clear and present danger that could be subject to suppression. It has to do with fire. It has to do with a the theater. Am I right about that? Oh, you 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 nailed it. As, as, as I had no doubt you would. You're absolutely correct. <laughs> let me let me say why I was very canny and how I put that, Byron. Because 99% of the time, 
most people who purport to paraphrase that famous phrase get it wrong. They say that the First Amendment does not protect shouting fire in a crowded theater. That is not what he said. He said the First Amendment does not protect falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic. Because, of course, if the theater is on fire, you want people to shout fire. And that important but usually missed factual point is so significant because it gets to the heart of the reasoning. It is only when the speech causes danger, not when the speech protects you against danger, that you will allow the speech to be suppressed. So context is everything. You have to look at the particular message and all of the facts and circumstances. And now, now, after after Schenck, we have a, a, a number over the next couple of decades, a number of uh, First Amendment speech cases. Deb, Eugene Debs uh, versus United States. We have Whitney versus California. Dennis versus United States. Now, the two things that stand out to me that those those cases I just mentioned have in common, um, they're related to. I'm using these words loosely now, socialists and or communist associations, coupled with the fact that the court ultimately sided with government. So, so that, and, that, and that sort of brings us then to Brandenburg versus Ohio. And could you tell us who Clarence Brandenburg was and why was he arrested? Clarence Brandenburg was, I believe, a TV uh, repair person in his everyday life, but he was also the leader of the local Ku Klux Klan chapter in Ohio, uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. He staged a rally of his Klan group uh, in a field that was privately owned, but he was invited to use it for that purpose. And he invited a uh, local uh, TV reporter to come along and film the proceedings, which consisted of uh, Clarence Brandenburg himself giving, you know, racist, anti-Semitic speech in which he used the N-word. And he said, you know, those people should be sent back to Israel. We had come to the United States from Israel. Uh, I'm laughing because it, I mean, it's it's not really a laughing matter because these were very dangerous, appalling, discriminatory ideas, and um, they were Brandenburg and his colleagues were uh, wearing the full regalia, hoods and masks and, and gowns, and some of them were brandishing firearms. And um, they, I think, the most violent statement he made was, you know, if Congress doesn't stop all this civil rights stuff, then we're going to have to, um, uh, revengeance will have to be taken. And he was punished under the same kind of state law uh, that was used to punish the socialist and communist speakers in the earlier cases that you outlined, Byron. Uh, in fact, it was a law that was passed during the Red Scare. These laws were passed all over the country, and they were against any speech that um, advocated terrorism or extremism or could threaten national security or lo- local security. And his he was convicted, and I think he received a maximum penalty. It was affirmed by uh, the state court system. And then, and he was represented by my organization. 
the American Civil Liberties Union. Even though from the very beginning of our history, we crusaded as much for racial equality and against discrimination, uh, you know, and against everything that Brandenburg stood for and advocated, but we still defended his free speech rights. And I want to emphasize that the ACLU lawyer in the National Legal Department that was on was the counsel of record uh, for the National ACLU is a certain Eleanor Holmes Norton, who for many years has been the District of Columbia representative. Maybe one of these days she'll actually be a voting member of Congress if things proceed. Uh, and she's an African-American woman who was the first black woman to be the chair of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, active in the civil rights movement. So her credential in favor of civil rights could not have been stronger. And she, to this day, is so proud of having defended not Brandenburg's ideas, but the principle that the Supreme Court upheld in that case when it struck down the Ohio statute and invalidated his uh, conviction, the court said, you know, if you're going to be punished for potentially inducing violence or unlawful conduct on the part of other people, which was the rationale here, you, you advocacy, even advocacy, uh, even strong advocacy of violent or lawless conduct is constitutionally protected. The only thing that is unprotected is intentional incitement of imminent lawless or violent conduct that is actually likely to happen imminently. And none of those factors was satisfied in that case. Now, this is a very, and, and, and let me, I just have to tell you that the next time the Supreme Court strictly enforced that strict standard, or very soon thereafter, uh, one of its next cases was on behalf of a speaker for the NAACP, a, a, a leader who was crusading for civil rights and uh, for a boycott of white merchants who were discriminating in Alabama. And he gave this very fiery speech in which he said, you know, if we catch any of you uh, breaking that boycott, we're going to bust your damn legs. Forgive me, you did use the, the four-letter word. And there was violence afterwards. Some people who were not supporting the boycott were, in fact, physically attacked. And the Supreme Court said, no, you can't show that um, the speaker, the NAAC speaker, intended it to happen. And it certainly did not happen imminently. So I want to be very clear that this speech suppressive standard, uh, in the first case, it happened to protect racist supremacist speech, which I abhor. But in subsequent cases, it has protected the speech of people with exactly the opposite message. Most recently, the ACLU was representing um, D. Ray McKesson, one of the leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, and arguing that he had been unfairly prosecuted in for violence that occurred in a Black Lives Matter demonstration uh, that he was not responsible for. He did not intentionally incite, so we were relying on Brandenburg again. And a, pro-civil rights context. I, I want to come back to the point you just made about, about the two cases, but, but I wanted to ask you, um, his, from a historical context, was the opinion in Brandenburg an attempt to coexist with not only Holmes' um, opinion in um, 
Shank, but also, which happens to be the, the, the judge, my favorite name for a judge, um, Learned Hand's opinion in a lower court decision. Was, was it try, were we trying to reconcile those two um, going forward? That's a really, I can't believe that you're not a lawyer because you know so much more about First Amendment law than most lawyers do. Uh, but that's exactly right. That um, what the Supreme Court did in Brandenburg, and I for, neglected an important point, Byron, which is that it was a unanimous decision. Every single justice on the Supreme Court agreed with it, not a single dissenting vote. If, and I, if, if, if I may just jump in real quick, and not only was it unanimous, but it was an 8 nothing decision that included Justice Thurgood Marshall on top of your Eleanor Holmes uh, Norton reference. Yes. <laughs> and Marshall was, uh, obviously, everybody w would expect him to be one of the strongest protectors of equal protection. He was also one of the strongest uh, defenders and, and, and exponents of a really robust First Amendment free speech that's ever sat on the court. Not coincidentally, because those two rights go hand in hand. Without that robust free speech right, um, the civil rights movement could never have made progress. And it's no coincidence that when you look at the speech protective decisions, and Brandenburg is an exception, but the vast majority from the 1960s and 70s came in the context of specifically protecting free speech rights and uh, free assembly and free association rights of, of pro-civil rights demonstrators. Now, I'm sorry, you asked me about, oh yes, and so in that very speech protective standard that the court uh, enunciated and unanimously supported in, in Brandenburg took the strongest speech protective elements that had been advanced by dissenting Supreme Court opinions earlier on by Holmes uh, in especially his famous Abrams decision, uh, Brandeis in his famous opinion in the Whitney case, which you mentioned earlier, and Justice Cardozo, or, I'm sorry, Judge Learned Hand in uh, a lower court case. It was, was it the Masses case? It was the Masses um, case, yes. The Masses case, and, and, and insisted because some of the elements had been in each of those, and the Supreme Court said, no, you've got to satisfy every single one of these requirements. There has to be intent, and it has to be to incite, not just advocate, and it has to be to incite imminent lawless or violent conducts, and moreover, it also has to be likely to actually happen, that there will actually be imminent lawless or violent conduct. And I think this standard is now fairly well known in the wake of the events of January 6th, because everybody understands that, you know, we use the term incite loosely in everyday speech. It's easy to say, oh, Donald Trump incited the insurrection. But you have to understand that as a, the legal concept of incitement is much narrower and much more demanding. Um, would I be wrong to suggest that you, you complimented me earlier but you can't believe i'm an attorney now i'm going to prove that i'm not an attorney um would i be would i be wrong to suggest obviously with the benefit of hindsight that in some ways the test that applied to brandenburg the brandenburg was actually closer to violating that test though the court held for him than the test established in shank though the court held for the government does that make sense? 
You are absolutely right, because um, in fact, part of the reasoning of both the majority, no, part of the reasoning, I'm sorry, of the dissent, um, Holmes stressed, uh, he used quite denigrating terms about these individuals. Again, there were three cases, and I can't swear that it was Schenck, but um, he, he said, you know, these are puny nothings. Nobody's going to listen to them. Nobody's uh, reading their pamphlets. They're not going to have an impact. Uh, but here you had Brandenburg, who was addressing uh, a, a crowd. It wasn't a large one, but they were committed members. They were brandishing firearms. Um, they were amenable to his viewpoint. Uh, it wouldn't be surprising if, instigated by his words, they did commit imminent lawless or violent conduct. Now, in fact, they didn't. So the last prong of Brandenburg clearly would not have been satisfied. But there may well have been enough evidence that he did intend to incite uh, imminent lawless or violent conduct. It's just that it wasn't likely to actually happen imminently. Yeah, now, I, I must confess that I've always been fascinated by the Brandenburg case because, and um, so I told my class recently, in my view, it offers an instructive constitutional lesson in that, and you sort of alluded to this already, it's possible to abhor the specifics, in this case, Brandenburg's speech, while at the same time supporting uh, the constitutional principle. And I wanted to get your thoughts as a, as a law professor and I would, you know, it's too much of our constitutional understanding in the public discourse based on the outcome and not enough on the constitutional principles involved. Your thoughts? Absolutely. And, and I had to deal with that all the time, Byron, when I was president of the ACLU, because people, the ACLU not only defended freedom of speech and the Brandenburg case, we were constantly coming to the defense precisely of people whose ideas were abhorred wherever they happen to be. Because if your speech is, is popular uh, and people agree with it, you're not likely to be censored. So by definition, our clients were always saying things that were abhorrent in their particular communities. Now, I emphasize in their particular communities because in the South, um, for much of our history, certainly during the civil rights movement, the speech that was abhorred was speech by Martin Luther King and by pro-civil rights demonstrators, right? Um, and to this day, it's kind of interesting. I see it on conservative college campuses. It's liberal and progressive and pro-Black Lives Matter speech that's being suppressed, whereas in you know progressive college campuses, it's, it's, it's the opposite. It's pro-Trump speech and, and so forth that's being suppressed. Um, but it's going to be unpopular in that particular community, which is why if we want to have meaningful freedom of speech, we have to look beyond the particular message, beyond the particular speaker to the underlying principle. So the ACLU for in recent history, notoriously, and in some people's eyes, you know, courageously has come to the defense of odious speakers in the tradition of Clarence Brandenburg in the late 1970s in Skokie, Illinois, we defended the free speech rights of a group of neo-Nazis. And this was a town that they deliberately picked to demonstrate in favor of their white supremacist, anti-Semitic ideas, because it was a town that had a large population of Holocaust survivors, uh, as well as many other Jewish residents. Even more recently in 2017 in Charlottesville, we came to the defense of the organizers of the Unite the Right rally uh, when they were going to be kicked 
out of the park that they had been permitted to to demonstrate in at the last minute because of dislike of their messages, not because of any evidence that there was going to be any violence. Tragically, it turned out that 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 there was violence, but it, that was not uh, shown by the evidence in advance. And um, in all of these cases, when people say to me, oh, how could the ACLU defend the Nazis? How could the ACLU defend Unite the Right? I say, we're not defending them. We are defending freedom of speech, which we depend on and, and all counter demonstrators depend on in order to oppose those messages as well. So, so when you think of uh, Brandenburg was arrested, I believe, in 1964, so, I mean, you had. Well, that was, right that was the Supreme Court, but I'm saying he was yeah. actually arrested in 64. Yeah. Yeah. And so, mm-hmm. you have, so you have a civil rights movement going on. You have um, the Vietnam protests just about to take shape, not quite. Um, you have a free speech movement in Berkeley. Um, you have on the heels of an emerging women's movement. So, to your point, wouldn't it be fair to suggest that Brandenburg who most likely would be opposed to all the things I just listed, was that case was actually standing proxy for everything I just mentioned that's totally antithetical to what he believed. You're, exact, you're exactly right. And thank you for reminding me that the rally that I described actually took place in 1964, and that wasn't a coincidence. Congress either had just passed or was just about to pass the historic 1964 Civil Rights Act. And that's specifically what he was protesting against. Uh, And uh, I think it's absolutely correct that the U.S. Supreme Court, which then was under the chief justiceship of Earl Warren, uh, very supportive of civil liberties and civil rights. We talk about the Warren Court as probably the high watermark of a United States Supreme Court that has been the most protective of uh, free speech and, 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 and rights of people accused of crime, as well as um, civil rights and, and non-discrimination. Uh, if I may, Byron, uh, a famous law professor at the time, Harry Calvin at the University of Chicago, uh, wrote an entire book about this phenomenon. And he used, you know, people are understandably sensitive about language. Uh, so let me say he used, the book came out in the late, sometime in the 1960s, I believe. And he used the term that was considered the, then the respectful term for black people. Um, the book was called The Negro and the First Amendment. And he talked about how, you know, in the zeal to give voice to civil rights demonstrators, who were including many African Americans, uh, the court. Um, increased free speech protection, not only for them, but for everybody else. And contrast, somebody else said, you know, looking at the fact that we had the Red Scare during World War One, and, you know, the Cold War and all the cases that you mentioned where communists and socialists had their speech suppressed, but with adverse impacts on all of the rest of us. Um, this other scholar said, blacks won back for us the free speech rights that the reds lost for us using a color metaphor. Hmm. Um, and we did, we've talked throughout this conversation uh, about the, the impact of the public mood um, with some of these landmark decisions. Um, are you concerned that 
protected speech, you sort of touched on this earlier, is increasingly coming under uh, the scrutiny of, of, of public approval. And, and I say that because recently, and I, I, read a, I wrote a piece about this, that a, a uh, con law professor at, at, at a uh, well-known law school was forced to retire because he simply read Brandenburg's actual racist remarks to the eye of some students. So do you worry that the direction of the public mood might be one that um, – where speech becomes more restrictive, that restrictive uh, than the test set forth in Brandenburg. There is absolutely no doubt that there is a big disparity between public understanding of what speech is protected and should be protected and what is actually protected. I think it's fair to say that the United States Supreme Court is much more speech protective than public opinion. And what's interesting, Byron, you and I discussed how the Brandenburg opinion was unanimous. It continues to be the case on the court that when it comes to hateful speech and racist speech and other forms of controversial speech, our current Supreme Court is by and large unanimous. You know, occasionally there will be one dissenting vote. Uh, but, give, you know, despite the fact that these are justices who are deeply divided on many issues, including some First Amendment issues, you know, all of them agree that on, on a principle that you and I have been talking about, the courts call it viewpoint neutrality or content neutrality, that government cannot discriminate on the basis of the viewpoint or the content or the message or the idea that no matter how despised it is, uh, by no matter how many members of the public, that is not a justification for su suppressing it. But I think the public thinks, well, you know, if 99% if of us consider this to be an odious message, that should be a justification for suppressing it. Now, now, now on that note, I want to go to an area of speech um, where, the con where, the, uh, where the Supreme Court is not unanimous. And, and, and I'm speaking, thinking specifically of, of Citizens United. Um, is there a danger... Uh, when speech is extended beyond the individual so that it includes corporations. I mean, what is the long-term, is there any long-term uh, impact about that, or am I just uh, overreacting? Uh, I'm not going to say you're overreacting, but let's go back to public opinion. Uh, I'd say the vast majority, or certainly a significant uh, percentage of the public believes that corporations should not have free speech rights, and yet... That was one of the holdings in Citizens United, which is a complicated decision with many holdings. But people are surprised to learn that the justices were unanimous, that of course corporations have free speech rights. Now, as I said earlier, you know, freedom of speech is not absolute. So the debate was over, is the particular restriction on their free speech rights that's imposed by this campaign finance law, is that restriction a permissible restriction? But the justices nine to zero from the most liberal to the most conservative agreed that um, you have free speech rights, not only as an individual, but there's this implied freedom of association. People are surprised to learn that's not expressly written in the constitution, uh, but the justices uh, in a case involving the NAACP from the civil rights uh, era um, held that their constitution as part of the freedom of speech and freedom of assembly and freedom of petition, all of which are expressly 
set out in the in the First Amendment uh, also includes an implicit right to band together, to associate with other people, to amplify your voices. And the NAACP is organized in corporate form. The ACLU is organized in corporate form. The NRA, Planned Parenthood, you name it. Um, you know, and the, and the, and you don't have fewer free speech rights because you're organized either as a for-profit corporation or a not-for-profit corporation or as a union or as an unincorporated association. Uh, and, and then we have not, not to mention all the media corporations. Think of all of the famous cases where uh, the plaintiff was New York Times, New York Times versus Sullivan, another landmark case from the civil rights movement. Uh, the New York Times is a corporation. And, and so that aspect of Citizens United uh, should be as uncontroversial among the public as it as it is among the justices. If they, if it, it takes a while to explain that, right? No, no it's important. No, it's, it's really important. So I'm wondering, although this is not a speech case, uh, it, it's, it's one, and it's a First Amendment case, and it, and it goes to, to religion. The example, the, the example you just gave for Citizens United in terms of speech, would that also apply to Hobby Lobby in terms of religion? Absolutely. And uh, as the Supreme Court held, and I don't think that there's any serious dissent from that aspect of the decision. The dissent, again, is when you get to weighing um, the asserted First Amendment right, whether it be free exercise of religion or freedom of speech, against the countervailing governmental interest. Because no freedom, including precious First Amendment freedoms, are absolute if the government, and I'm now going to use a, a lawyer's term, uh, we call it strict scrutiny. If the government can survive this really close review, strict scrutiny, uh, to show that the restriction on speech or the restriction on religion is necessary to promote a countervailing goal of compelling importance, then the restriction is constitutionally permissible. So. When you can speak about religion in the context of COVID, that's what the debate has been. Are restrictions on religious gatherings justified by the need to protect public health? It's, it's, it's a fact-specific determination. Um, given, given your work uh, and your, your experience, and, your, and plus your most recent book, uh, about hey, speech that shouldn't be, should be countered, um, not with with uh, uh, silencing the other side. Uh, where do where do, where do you see the evolution of speech going? Given it was silent, pretty much silent in the 18th century. I mean, 19th century, and it revs up in the 20th century. Where do you see it going in the next, say, 10, 15 years? These this period is crucial, uh, Byron and. Uh, if those of us who want to preserve a free speech culture as well as free speech law really have our work cut out for us. Uh, a, a professor at Harvard Law School in the early 20th century who was the first author of a treatise about freedom of speech was named Zechariah Chafee. He was a founder of the ACLU and he said, in the long run, people will have just as much freedom of speech as they want. Uh, for this reason, if we elect you know government officials who don't care about free speech or want to suppress it they'll do 
that. And then they'll confirm, nominate and confirm justices who don't care about free speech and won't protect it. For the vast majority of U.S. history, there was no meaningful free speech for dissenters or members of uh, religious or racial or other minority groups. We could easily revert back to that if there is not adequate public knowledge of and public support for freedom of speech, which is why I spend every waking moment educating and advocating, and I am so grateful to people like you who are doing the same. Hmm. Constitutional law professor at New York University and former president of ACLU, Nadine Strassen, I want to thank you so much for joining me today on The Public Morality. Much appreciated, your, your, your wise counsel, and educating me on the law. Much appreciated. And thank you. You educated me as well, Professor. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at PublicMorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at PublicMorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. In the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. (laughs) 